0: hey
1: rob how you doing
0: good good how are you
1: very good
0: awesome yeah I, I went ahead and just started recording i figured it's
1: just easier to not like create a big thing going into it not but, uh, a problem i gather you moved from somewhere to new york or something is that what you said
0: yes indiana indiana to long island
1: that's a big change
0: yeah yeah we were only there for like a year and we had Moved there from Northern Virginia. My wife was working in D.C. at the Pentagon, and and so we were not so uh, long removed as far as time goes from the kind of hustle and bustle. But the uh, the most interesting shift that we just encountered was that so in Indiana we were we were half a mile on a gravel road to get to our house. Uh, you know? and and around us was nothing, you know, like it was we were on a lake, it was gorgeous. We had so much wildlife, all the deer and geese, it was foxes, it was amazing but uh, but given our location and that and we weren't like a part of some sort of small town outside of Terre Haute, we were just thirty minutes away, and so nothing delivered, no, not even dominoes, you know <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> So like the convenience factor, we we very quickly adopted the 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 adage, you know, oh hey babe, I'm gonna run into town. Do you need anything?
1: Yeah, right. Run into it's town like, takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't we it? It
0: really did. We got to experience what that life was like. And uh yes, and actually had to go to a conference, like a planning conference. Oh, sorry, fix this uh, planning conference very, very shortly after we got here, we heard for like two, three days, and she had to go. So it was just me and my stepdaughter, Audie, and she, uh, we were, we were sitting around, we had just run out of food. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was getting ready. I was like, all right, let's pack up. We're going to go out and go get something. And I stopped. I was like, wait a minute. Grubhub like we're on long island and we had fresh sushi delivered to our doorstep within oh. like 30
1: minutes
0: it was just that's honestly everyone's like oh the culture shock i'm like that's the culture shock <laughs>
1: like- it, that's funny you mentioned that because i live in a small town in colorado okay. and a, fr- a friend of mine wrote a poem about about living in a town that didn't have sushi And we just have a sushi restaurant opening up this week, so we're all really excited.
0: Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Whereabouts in Colorado?
1: A little town called Salida near a sort of smallish, medium-sized ski area right in the middle of the state.
0: Oh, beautiful.
1: Oh. Beautiful. It's a a great place. We love living here, and uh, it's a really great community, which is uh, something we had not experienced before having lived where we had lived.
0: Absolutely. That's so important oh my gosh, the, the, how you interact with your community and the ability to connect makes all the difference in the world, which actually is like probably a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, that in the workplace.
1: Yep, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good.
0: So I did, Um, I started doing this thing with interviews where I wanted to have people introduce themselves in a in a little bit different way. I I've found that the two most powerful words that we all have, um, that we all use in our internal dialogue, our internal narrative, are "I am," you know, and it's like how we see ourselves, who we see ourselves as, uh, versus, and I I feel like that kind of negates the this is what I do and that's kind of who I am and so that's how I like to start but, but I wanted to do it a little bit different this time because I was reading your bio I know we had talked before but I was reading your bio and it's just so gosh darn interesting and so <laughs> so I just wanted to do a couple of touch points on that real quick and then and that'll let you give you some time to stew on the I am uh thing that I'm gonna it's a little exercise that we will run into in a second so reading a little bit from your bio, from your website, from robdubin.com. It says, Rob Dubin was an award-winning filmmaker who traveled the world making TV programs and commercials for Fortune 500 companies. He's also a serial entrepreneur who created multiple seven-figure businesses. Let that sink in for a second. <laughs> multiple seven-figure businesses. so amazing. Which afforded you the opportunity to retire at the age of 42. That's something that from from my community being uh, having the military background, that's something that we're familiar with, but from a very different lens. <laughs> there but were many, incredible. many then,
1: military, retired military doing what we did on the sailing sailing thing.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, and lots and exactly lots, you know, the because they've
1: done their 20 years and they're still very young. Yes. They would be like the same age I was, you know, in their mid forties, they've done their 20 yep. years, they get a decent pension. And they've probably traveled the world or been posted at different places. so yeah, that was a uh, a common thing that we had a lot of military friends,
0: yeah, and that was that was the interest one of the most interesting I mean it's also incredibly interesting that you so you sold you retired forty two moved onto a forty foot sailboat and spent the next not like six months, not like year the next seventeen years. Stealing around the world and studying human happiness and fulfillment. I definitely have a question on that that I want to get back to. Um, and then it, you know, we talk about Rob gives back by teaching courses and employment happiness, which increase engagement. Oh, so important, reducing resignations and combating quiet quitting. I love that. I love the way that that's phrased, just because it's really looking at kind of like the core cause, a oh, core root. Uh, problem that needs addressing and the fallout of properly addressing those things leads to the byproduct of reduced resignations and reduced and, and combats quiet quitting. I, that's, that's what I think a lot of people miss. And I definitely we're going to dive really deep into that because that's something that I spend a lot of time around as well. Um, uh, without going into too much more detail, I just, I, I, it, you focus a lot on happiness and happiness in the workplace. And I think that's really cool. Um, the I want to put throw this out there so that way you can remind me later in case I forget. So one of the things about that that I wanted to ask was, um, when your when you when you were spending those seventeen years sailing around the world studying human happiness and fulfillment, was that an active like? Were you actively seeking? processes and and cultural differences in these places or was it something that you just uh that just came to you as you were experiencing
1: them um i'll talk about that yep 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 yep. but first but first let's do it so i have a good i have a good answer to that question so if you want to ask, ask that that's fine
0: yeah yeah um so we'll kick off first with just saying okay rob dubin you fill in the blank i am
1: you ready to go let's do it (laughs) uh well thanks for having me matt and i know you uh told me you like to start off your interviews with asking the question i am so people describe something different than what they do for work and i have to tell you i'm probably a little bit of an anomaly because i have never done anything for work that did not define i am I've been super intentional about my life, and I knew at a very young age how incredibly lucky I was when I was in high school. I knew I wanted to go into photography and film and communicate with people through that visual medium. And so in high school, when all my friends were applying to, you know, dozens of liberal arts colleges, and of course they would go on to change their major two or three times along the way, as almost everybody does. I knew what i wanted to do i went right right from high school to the best film school i could get into and afford and and doing exactly what i wanted to do where i wanted to live and then right after i graduated i was 22 years old and i founded my own film production company and a combination of like most successful people you work your tail off but you also get lucky breaks and i got some lucky breaks that put me Uh, In advanced my career much faster than it would have otherwise. And so within a couple of years of starting my own little tiny fledgling film company, trying to work for little local businesses in Colorado, I got in with a group of guys doing work all over the world for ABC TV for uh, a sports program. And so that fed exactly what I wanted to do. I was a very adventurous person. I liked mountain climbing and skiing and all these uh, kayaking, and lots of adventurous pursuits. And I got paid to go all over the world and do that with a camera in my hand. So I've never done anything for work that was not who I am. And that is, that's so
0: powerful. Um, and it's such a powerful message now because I, I,
1: I truly believe
0: that we live in a world now, especially in the western portion uh kind of western civilization we live in a world now that we are so much closer to that for more people and that's such it 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 wasn't even a consideration for for i wouldn't even say you know that long ago but for well over the majority like was the overwhelming majority of human existence that this idea of personal fulfillment and and doing, finding something that you're passionate about and putting yourself into it. It was go to work, grind, make sure that the family's taken care of. And that's that's actually that's that's where I, I discuss a lot about um the work workplace culture and things like that in the sense of we spend most of our waking hours at work, right? And with that, if you're not, if you're not finding fulfillment, then you're going to have a hard time staying motivated in this day and age. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, if, if we as people do not, uh, do not recognize that. And, and by we, as people, I'm thinking about like the corporations, like the people who actually hire the people, if, they didn't need to recognize this need for fulfillment for such a while, because like in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're looking at work fulfilled the first two rungs of the ladder. And that was, that was the unspoken agreement between work and home is that you're going to have safety security. You're going to have security and employment. You know, you're going to be able to have enough money to, to provide for your family the rest of your life, the rest of that hierarchy, that's on you, you know, figure that out on your own. And we're, we're realizing that with, with the, with the amount of hours that we're spending at work, you know, we want that we want what we're investing our time and what we're learning, what we're getting better at, what we're developing skills in, we want that to be in touch with who we are. And so. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. That's so essential. And You know so i told you the part of my story that i just did and here's the maybe even more uh salient part of that i made movies for 20 years and i loved it for 19 and a half years and when i stopped loving it i stopped doing it that's very quick (laughs) yeah very quickly i mean part of it was a little bit the circumstances allowed me to stop but Mm You know, there, uh, I just wouldn't have done something that wasn't who I am, that didn't, that didn't fill me up anymore. And uh, I, there are certainly a lot of jobs you can do if your heart's not in them. A creative job like making movies is not one of those. You, oh, wow. If you don't feel it, you can't do. be even remotely good at it. And so when I stopped loving it, I stopped doing it. And that's when my wife and I retired and we sold our home and we bought a sailboat. And we went on to spend the next 17 years uh, sailing around the world. And I met so many people like you just described, uh, in third world countries living how, as how we have lived, as you said, for thousands of years, I met so many, so many men whose sole choice in life was, am I going to be a farmer or am I going to be a fisherman? Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: those were the only two choices they had. And when you think about those of us in the Western world that have unlimited choices, it's really a shame if people don't seize that opportunity and do something that stirs their soul and that, that makes them excited every morning to get up. And- I'll go ahead. Uh, you know, I know we, we're both very interested in the HR side of things in, in organizations, and we have this new uh, meme about quiet quitting and I see it as mostly a lose-lose situation. There's one positive aspect of the quiet quitting is that if an employee wants to set a boundary for, you know, okay, after five o'clock, I go home and I don't take emails, right? I don't check my email on the weekend. So if employees want to set boundaries, I think that's terrific because that's necessary to not get burned out and to have a real life. And as you said, we spend so many of our waking hours. So that's the one positive part of quiet quitting. But the other side of it is a lose-lose situation. Because if employees disengage, obviously productivity goes down and the company loses, Mm -hmm. but the employee themselves also loses because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when we start to get into the thing of meaning and purpose in our lives, which is what creates happiness, And happiness is what I primarily talk about. But for most of us, because we spend so much time at our work and we should be doing work that fulfills us, we should find that work that fulfills us. If you disengage from that, you're hurting yourself. You're taking away the thing that can add meaning and purpose to your life. And so that's why this quiet quitting is a lose-lose situation. I, I love the idea that employees now have the power to set boundaries because the balance of power has shifted a little bit because we're in a talent crunch. But if they disengage themselves from their work, they're going to make themselves less happy in the long run. So that's a, a downside of it.
0: So here's a, you just made me think about a couple of things. So one of them is a question of can everybody work in a job that is intrinsically meaningful you know it, 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 I, I feel like there's there are so many functions of our society where the the pure stabilization of the comforts that we live like i i just had to figure out our trust schedule because we just moved you know what i mean <laughs> so i so, like oh, i gotta make sure that the the right stuff goes out on the right days and there's a lot of uh interesting things about trash pickup in New York where like I had to tie my boxes with rope together and maybe that's normal, but I've never had to do that before. So that was a little, a uh, little digression there. But <laughs> the point is we need people to pick up trash. You know, we need people well, to, to run utilities and things like that. And so how does fulfillment seeking fulfillment and things like that, how does that tie into some of these service-based uh, or, uh you know, utility-based Roles. I
1: I think it depends on your mindset. You know there's that apocryphal story of JFK when he announced that we're going to go to the moon in this decade because it's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then later on he went to NASA and he did a speech and he the, the a lot of the employees were gathered for the speech and afterwards he shook hands and he shook hands with a man who was a janitor there and he had been with an engineer beforehand and he asked the same question of many of the people and he shook hands with the janitor and he said what do you do here and the man said I'm helping to put a man on the moon sir
0: yeah oh that's such a great story it's such a that's such a better apocryphal story than the than the almost guaranteed um um you know fairy tale of like the two masons the two stone masons i'm sure that you've heard of it now so it's the uh, it's the same same exact concept same exact moral where you have two stone masons that are both working oh. on building a structure right right and, yeah uh, yeah and so if to just for the people that haven't heard it if you know you have two stone masons they're working on building something and they're working out in the the bleeding hot temperatures and just busting their backs and uh, you go up to one and you ask him, you know, like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, Oh, you know, it's just, I'm breaking my back out here. I'm sweating. It's so hard. And I'm building this giant thing. And, and, you know, I, I don't even, I am almost guaranteed to never see the end result of this come in my lifetime. And I'm just, you know, I'm just making enough just to bring the money home to support my family. But then you go to the second stonemason and you ask him like, okay, you know, what are you doing here? Like, how's, how's life going? He's like, Oh my gosh, I'm this is the most incredible opportunity in the world. You know, I'm, I'm not just laying stones. I'm building a, a church. I'm building a monastery. And I may never see it, but this is going to be something that my children are going to be able to walk into and worship God. And, and, and it's just that difference in how you define your role
1: in scope scope of, of the larger, bigger image exactly and i think you can do that with almost anything you know i uh i remember when i was in business and i was the the president of the uh film association in colorado and the film business is very much a cyclical you're always out of work basically waiting for the next job to happen as a freelancer and i remember i made a commitment to do something for this nonprofit organization that i was on the president of, and then a big job came our way. And I had to turn it down. And I remember somebody saying to me, I can't believe you would do that. And in my mind, once I made the commitment to the other thing, Mm -hmm. it became as real as anything else in my life. And so I think it's kind of the same analogy. It's how you process what you're doing, what it means to you. And You know, now I I, actually that that event that I just talked about happened probably 35 years ago. And if you ask me what job I would have done that week, I have no idea. But I do know that that organization that I started 35 years ago is still growing strong, going strong, and it's got hundreds and hundreds of members and it's brought billions of dollars in film production work into the state of colorado so at the time the relative of importance to me of getting another job that would help feed my family was definitely a bigger deal but i did the other thing i built the church as you're talking about and and in the long run i can tell you which is much more important to me so i I think it's all you in your mindset which it part is part of what i teach in the happiness training i do a lot of it is about mindset and and deciding to give yourself permission to be happy and then how you go about creating that in your life and when i do that with uh employees in organizations they are happier in their work life they're happier in their home life productivity goes up for the company i mean it's a win-win all the way around and it's just a shift in thinking it's not uh you know, it's not like going to the gym every day and you can see the physical bulk up of the muscles. This is just a change in how you think about something that has a completely different end result in your life.
0: And I think you can really show people how to look for those gains. Like, it's like you said, it's not the obvious physical, like, wow, look at my shoulders. You know, it's, it's, uh, if you're trained to look for the differences, like, for instance, I think about relationships, you know, think about the quality of your relationships with people at work and think about the, the openness that you have to develop a meaningful relationship when you're finding meaning at work. And I think a lot of finding meaning through work is, you know, the first step to, to a positive change in any direction. And in my humble opinion is gratitude. And I, I firmly believe that if you take in, if you, if you, do a conscious gratitude exercise in the morning and it's not anything ridiculous, you know, somewhere between three and five minutes will do and you run through that, you take that to work and, and what you're doing is kind of rewiring the neural network inside of your mind and you're, you're now attuned to other things because you've done this gratitude exercise. And so it's kind of always lingering there in the background, especially as you do it more and more and more, you go to work and you start to pay attention to other things and you're seeing what other people are doing. I've done this when I was in the army. I remember I'd go into other people's offices in the morning before I wouldn't even go to my office until like half an hour after I was supposed to be there. Cause I literally made the rounds every morning to every other department in our, in our staff. And I'd go in there and I'd see, and I'd tell them, like, hey, what's going on? Like, what fires are you guys putting out today? You know, how's life? And they would say, they would tell me what's going on. And I, rem- I, would, I would tell them, I would think of this and I would tell them, I'm like, I am so grateful that you're doing this job because I don't want to do it, but it's so incredibly important that it has to be done. And so even just that, and being able to tell someone like, I'm like, you're doing such good work. Like you, I remember, it was kind of like the, the internal HR department of the army, kind of that handled like passes and leaves and stuff like that. Like, can you imagine people not being able, not having a system that people know how it works to be able to put in for leave and to put in for passes to be able to take time off and get that quality time with their family? It's yeah. it's incredible.
1: You're and you're <clears throat> you're checking two different boxes there with what you talk about because you're giving the positive feedback to your your team and letting them know how important what they do is and the gratitude side of it you, you exactly you nailed it completely and I teach a gratitude practice in what in my course and part of what happens you alluded to but there's actually a, a ton of science behind it a lot of what I teach in the happiness it has to do with the the science of happiness and what happens with the gratitude practice I instruct I ask people to do it for five minutes a day and write down five things they're grateful for and do it toward the end of each day and I say but you you have to do it two things you have to get in touch with how you really feel about it not just you might only take you a minute to write all five things Mm -hmm. but you have to spend five minutes thinking about it and then you have to do it for a month and what happens there is exactly what you described when you actually do the gratitude practice you release dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin in your brain and those are the feel-good chemicals so now you feel good when you're relating to that gratitude and when you do it a month you now your brain now makes the connection between the feeling good that after the chemicals get released with the idea of writing down the gratitude practice so now on day 31 it's a habit and you want to do it because it makes you feel good Mm -hmm. and One of the things uh, that we noticed in our life uh, when we stopped filming, and my wife and I sold our home and bought a sailboat and set off to sail around the world, our life was blissful on the boat, as you can imagine. We were doing things every day to make ourselves happy, and we were sailing to so many third world countries and seeing so many people who. There was just no other way to say it. We knew we had such a more privileged life than they did. Mm -hmm. They came from countries where they never would have had that opportunity. And so the only uh, emotion you can have in that situation is gratitude. Mm -hmm. And for us, gratitude wasn't, it it started long ago with that five-minute practice. For us, it became the way we spent 24 hours of every day. It was gratitude was probably our primary emotion that we felt all day, every day. And then we found when we did it all day, every day, while we were sailing around the world for 17 years, it becomes a habit that you can't. I mean, it's like brushing my teeth or going to the bathroom. I can't imagine not spending a huge part of every day feeling grateful for the life that I, that I have. And uh, so that's a, a big part of it, certainly, for sure, the gratitude practice. And I, it's also the easiest thing when I teach this framework of happiness, the gratitude practice is the easiest slam dunk. It works for everybody. Yep. It's easy to adopt. It's easy to explain it, as I did in a few minutes here. A lot of the other things I teach are more involved, yep. and some one of them might help you and the other one might help me. I teach a, a nine step framework and not everybody needs all nine steps or right. benefits equally from all nine pillars of it. But the gratitude practice is almost universal. If e- anybody can improve their life by doing that.
0: Absolutely. No, it's 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 definitely powerful. And it is it has done it's incredible because. As much as I know of, I instilled the same thing. I, I did the gratitude practice for a very long time. I facilitated seminars and workshops on on gratitude practices amongst other resilience strategies. And I don't do I don't do it anymore. I don't do the sit down, be grateful anymore, except for as a tool when I feel myself uh, getting drawn to the dark side, if you will. like when I'm getting overwhelmed by negative emotions. I recognize that and I go for it and it's and i I I don't do it it's not that I don't do it because I don't see value in it or that I think that I'm like I'm above it now it's because exactly what you said after doing it for so long and after facilitating the workshops it permeates my day like I and and I look for opportunities actively when I'm out to express to to go to that next level of gratitude uh of expressing it like you said and and bringing people in on my gratitude even when it's just a store clerk at the grocery store
1: you know one of my I, favorite things to do is my wife and i'll be at a restaurant and we'll have a really good waitress and i'll make a gigantic point of saying you know the food here was good but our meal was so much better because you're so good at your job you made our experience here so wonderful and i don't do it if it's not true but exactly it's very often true and you know that's that means more to that person, and I've had them, many of them, tell me that that means more to them than a twenty dollars tip. Yeah. I mean, I'll give them a tip as well, but <laughs> that hits them on a level that the that the money doesn't. And you know, I remember one time I I uh, we had a just an exceptional waitress, and I had told her during the meal how exceptional she was, and then at the end of the meal, I said, "Would you bring your manager over?" And her face just fell, like she thought she had done something oh. terrible. And uh, she brought her manager over, and I just said, and I introduced myself, and I just want to said I just want to tell you that Jane here was such a wonderful waitress, and I don't know if you've trained her or how she's been trained, but she's so good at what she does, and I just want to thank you both, and you know, it made everybody's day, and it made me feel good, and it was saying speaking the truth.
0: Absolutely, and I think that one of the most important things about that when you're expressing the gratitude outward. Um, and you're turning it, turning it into an outward practice. This is actually something that I that I do with with teams and leaders to help them um to create blueprints for success. And it's being specific, right? It's so important to say like you could I' I remember going up before I learned about this and before I started facilitating it, i um, I tell people like, hey, man, you did a really great job on that presentation. Like that was awesome. Good. That's great. And they would, they would have a smile like, thanks, man. Yeah, I feel like it went really well. And that would essentially be where it ended. But the thing is, that doesn't, pre- that doesn't give them any cues as to what about that presentation was good. And what should they, what should they really hone in on and, and leverage as their skills? Maybe it's just things they do naturally. When I could tell them like, Hey, you, you did a really good job projecting your voice. And when questions were coming in, you didn't feel a need to immediately respond. You stopped for a moment, you paused and you thought about your response. And then you gave a really thoughtful response. And one of the beautiful, things is that when you didn't know something you told them you're like you know what that's a great question i my team we can definitely get on that right away we can work on it and find you a great answer and i'll get back to you as soon as we can you know though and so giving that he's like oh these are these are good things like maybe inside his head he's thinking oh man i should have had the answer and i feel like so dumb that i wasn't prepared for this i'm like no that's that's perfect. You're never going to have hundred percent of the answers. And the fact that you answered it with such grace and dignity means the world and it, and it really shows your professionalism. And so being able to have those conversations that creates reproducibility.
1: I knew what you were going to say before you said it, because I know you're (laughs) such a pro at this and I completely agree. You know, terrible management is the performance review once a year (gasps) Oh. I've spent so slightly, much time
0: on performance
1: slightly up the scale is what you said initially you a know, nice job on the presentation at least you're at least you're doing it in the moment which is a little bit better than the annual performance review and but it's that's still that's hitting the you know that's getting to first base maybe exactly and the home run is for managers is exactly what you outlined every manager listening to your to this podcast should take that to heart because that is the key it is specific at the time and sincere and repeatable it's all those things just as you said and so i hope every manager listening to this takes heart and and takes note of that because that's exactly what it takes
0: what have you seen as far oh oh, you know before we get into that i wanted to go back to something that we had talked when we were talking about the motivation for people that are working in jobs that aren't necessarily intrinsically motivating or fulfilling to them so i wanted i had a question for you about transitionary mindsets so I remember I worked with uh, a colleague in the army who was dead set on becoming a police officer and a, a working security within the NSA. Like that was his dream because it was really close to his hometown. And he ever since he was a kid, for whatever reason, he really wanted to be on that, that task force. And so while he was in the army, he underperformed on a consistent basis and from a very objective place and, and he would tell you that i remember having conversations i wasn't his leader we were both fresh joe's like straight up. we went to basic we went to a like our advanced individual training together and we went to our first duty station together and he would tell i remember going i was like hey man like what are you doing? Like, you're not, you're not showing up to work on time. Like what's, what's going on. He's like, oh, I just don't really care about this. You know, like I'm here to do my time and be able to have it on my resume. Like, yeah, I have the military experience. I want to take that because my real focus is this thing over here. And I think for a lot of people right now in between the gig economy and, and really people, the, the part of the thing that's spurring the great resignation. Uh, the mass quitting of people for months on end of what it's been f- over 4 million for something like 16 straight months of voluntary quits in the United States alone. And a part of that is people are starting their own little endeavors. And if you're quitting and doing that, that doesn't really apply here. But if you're, if you're strategically going like, okay, I need to be able to keep a steady source of income while I'm starting my side hustle um, that I eventually want to turn into a full-time gig, a lot of people, I feel like they lose that sense of determination and, and work ethic and happiness. Like it turns into this grind, like, oh, I have to show up and do this job and I don't care about it. And I really want to do this thing. That's where I want to put my focus. What kind of advice, because I think there's a lot of people out there that might be listening to this that might need to hear what you're going to have to say. What would you say to them in regards to the importance or the impact, or maybe there's not importance in, in giving that job? You know a certain amount of effort and energy
1: there's kind of three different things to unpack in what you just raised there the the first thing i'll say is i've been an entrepreneur since i was 20 years old i mean uh, i I, you know i remember i had a paper route and then i worked in a hospital and i worked in a store and all of those were before i was 18 and then after i went to film school i've never worked for anyone other than myself but i will tell you and people find out that entrepreneurship especially solopreneurship is not easy oh my God. there is a reason that 90 percent of businesses fail within the first few years so the the gig economy has made possible a lot of things that weren't possible before I mean when I was young if you wanted to start a business it almost certainly required a big chunk of capital and today there are all kinds of businesses you can start with no capital online and you know with some skills so people have the opportunity to be entrepreneurs or solopreneurs but it's not an easy road and don't think it is an easy road and I think what we're seeing is during the pandemic and since then we had this paradigm shift in the pandemic with millions of people asking themselves questions they'd never asked before am I happy is my life going the way it wanted I wanted it to be and millions over 40% of the employees in the workforce said no I'm not living the life I want mm-hmm. so that's what led to the great resignation but a lot of those people have left they've started a gig deal and look you can make yourself do anything for a year or maybe two years you know so when you're when you started your gig job and you're only making 40% of what you did in your corporate job, Mm -hmm. that's okay for the first six months because you know you're building it. But if it hasn't worked after 8, 10, 12 months or a year, Mm -hmm. you know, you and your wife and your family are going to say, well, maybe this isn't the right thing. So a lot of people have made that realization, A, that, you know, you can work your tail, out, you can work 18 hours a day for yourself when you're not going to work 18 hours a day for your corporation. But If the end results aren't showing it after a year or so, you're going to say I'm working too hard, I'm not making enough money, and maybe entrepreneurship is not for you, and a lot of people are finding that and it's a good experience to learn there's. There's no real downside to that it maybe may make you appreciate your boss and your job a little more. For the ones that it does work, they have a whole new path and that's terrific. But i think people need to be aware that there's both sides of that coin mm. entrepreneurship is not just grass really being all greener uh <laughs> really mad <laughs> the other side of it is i think that you know back to that idea of of the janitor at nasa or whatever i mean the the secret to that i believe and and i'm sharing i worked with tony robbins for over 30 years i mean i've known tony from the early 90s 89 or 90 i started working with him and and uh, he became a part of our lives and called my wife a number of times in the hospital and things like that and we were his guests at all the seminars and programs he does early in the 90s and later on and what i'm going to share now is from tony but he has a set of problem solving questions and i use them in all aspects of my life i use them in Uh, we all have uh, things in our life some experience in our life that didn't go as we wanted and we have some negative story we tell ourselves about ourselves when we get into our self-talk and this is a process i teach to get rid of that negative self-talk or to solve problems in your life or to answer that question am i building some wall or am i you know that in the hot sun or am i building a church Mm -hmm. and the secret is to ask yourself better questions. So whether it's a problem solving question or a, or a question to motivate yourself to change what you focus on, if you ask yourself better questions, well, what else could this mean? Well, it could mean I'm building a church instead of a wall. It could mean I'm gonna be building a building that's gonna outlast my lifetime and my kid's lifetime. So how can I solve this problem in my life? And one of those questions, you can look the questions up online, uh, Tony Robbins Problem Solving Questions, but an example are, what am I no longer willing to do? So maybe you decide, okay, I'm not willing to pick up the trash anymore, or, or how can I do this job and still enjoy it? That's a different question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I willing to do to make things the way I want? What am I no longer willing to do? What am I willing to do? What's great about this problem or could be great about the problem? How can I solve this problem and enjoy the process so you can also always ask yourself better questions so way back when I was turning away that job that I described and instead going to work for free for this association that I was part of well. I can ask myself better questions, why is this other thing important to me and come up with an answer well this will be here long after the I'll forget you know whatever money I would have made on the job I turned down, I would have spent long ago by now. And this other thing here's this association that's benefited tens of thousands of filmmakers in the last thirty years. So you can change what you focus on, and you'll change your thinking. Mm -hmm. And the way to change the focus is by asking better questions.
0: I think that that's a great answer. One of the things that I that I I just heard that I just listened to this interview between Jordan Peterson and oh, I'm totally dropping his name. He's he was he's a British um, Piers Morgan, Piers Morgan, yeah. um, great, great, great conversation. Um, I think they did too. This is the one that was on Jordan Peterson's channel, and they had brought up this gentleman. So while Piers was on America's Got Talent as kind of like the the rough and tumble uh, judge, you know, he a person came onto the stage who was a ventriloquist, and he would do a kind of singing and and spoken part of his show and it really stood out to peers he really loved it he was he ended up uh he ended up winning the whole thing but the interesting part was the backstory of this guy who was in he was performing at some like cafeteria some small cafe and there were maybe three to five people there and he was like I, you know i'm i'm just going to put on a show I, I i'm here i always perform to my max capacity i always perform to excellence you know to what to what i deem to be my highest level and so he did he he was really bringing it and and apparently there was uh i don't know if they were a talent agent but i think there was somebody that actually worked with America's got talent happened to be one of those 3 to 5 people and they told him they're like hey have you ever considered singing like making singing part of your thing because he wasn't singing at the time it was just pure ventriloquism spoken and it hit him because something he would do something else where they figured that they knew that he could sing and so he was like i never thought about introducing that to the ventriloquist part of what i do and so he did ended up taking that to america's got talent ended up winning america's got talent is Ended up getting a uh, a spot in Las Vegas for a show to the point where he became one of the most successful shows in Vegas and having his own, I don't know if it was a hotel or a, a theater, I think it was a performing theater named after him in Vegas. All of that from an elite performance given to a nothing crowd because he performed excellently. And that was one of the things that I... I, I thought about when thinking about my friend back in the army was that like hey man you never know who's around and this maybe shouldn't be like the core motivation to act with excellence but take it into consideration if you can't find another one is that the, you're building relationships yeah that's not even the right word you relationships are forming around you regardless of your intention, regardless of of what you think, and regardless of your plans. So if your plan is to not worry about this thing and go do your other thing, the way that you're acting here is going to form the relationships with the people around you. And the people around you, you don't know who their connections are. You don't know, like if you were performing top tier the nsa police is not that far off from military there's guaranteed to be veterans there and and connections and associations so if you're if if you're performing very poorly while you're serving there's going to be communication there's going to be talk about that you know and it can go the other way if you're performing excellently you know not only you're going to have referrals you might have somebody that knows somebody specifically there that can get you that shoe in and so it's just it's it brings me back to a point that you brought on early on. You said that you busted your hump, like when you were uh, w- when you had started your entrepreneurial endeavors in film, and you got into some very lucky situations. And I love the it, it maybe it's overused now, um, but the the expression that you know, luck is what happens when you are when you're prepared for the opportunity. I'm not getting it right. But when you're when you're prepared and you're working hard, you're creating opportunities for luck to happen. And so you might see it as luck and it might even be luck, but you couldn't have received, you couldn't have been the recipient of that luck had you not put yourself in the position to be there.
1: Absolutely. And you know and that's so so critical. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan famously said I demand more of myself than anybody else would ever have a right to expect of me so you know if his coach expected him to do 100 reps of a free throw he did 500. And if practice started at eight in the morning he got there at seven and did an hour before practice and you know that's what leads to greatness without a doubt and and. I know for myself I've always demanded more of myself than others would have a right to expect and what and I just I don't know I try and motivate people with a number of uh analogies to do that and it's not always successful and I I wish I could say I've discovered the silver bullet part of what I think it is and I know this is a big uh I work with a lot of HR departments because they're the ones that. Hire me and bring me in to talk to their employees and and do my workshop. And one of the HR, uh, I guess, skills or whatever that one of the bywords that they're doing today is they don't hire for skills; they hire for attitude. And you know, it used to be, you know, can you do an Excel spreadsheet? Can you do Word? You know, whatever the job was, if you knew the job, they would hire you. And now they've realized it's a whole lot more important to hire for attitude and we can train you in the actual skill if your skill level isn't up there and that's certainly important and you know your friend who you described he probably would have excelled in that job but he didn't maybe do enough on the front end to get the offer because as you said he wasn't putting out the right vibe so I believe you have to do both you have Mm -hmm. to find the right opportunity and you know i don't mean to knock trash collectors or or uh, janitors because absolutely we need those jobs but there are some people for whom that job is is the right job and that's terrific and we should encourage that and you know it, whether it's the the kennedy analogy or however you do it that's the goal and i have a friend who i love to quote uh, a beautiful and brilliant uh, woman speaker named gabrielle boche who has a company called the purpose company and she says i'm already sold (laughs) yeah she says your purpose is the best of what you have to help others and i actually get choked up every time i say it because i used to do some teaching and some programs for college students on how to find your purpose and i told you i was very lucky that i knew mine when i was in high school but you know my whole hour-long presentation doesn't say it as well as that one quote of hers that your purpose is the best of what you have to help others and so if you can find that niche for yourself then the motivation you don't need it 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 comes from within we don't have to you know certainly you want a boss that's going to help you grow but if you if you find that thing for yourself that is the best of you that can help somebody else then you'll be in the right niche and you'll have that motivation and that drive inside of you. And the way I teach some of that is write down everything that you're good at or everything that you would be willing to get good at with some training and write down something that you do when you, when, when you do it, time evaporates, you just, you know, you could start doing it at one minute and the next thing you know, it's midnight and you're still totally engaged in Mm. it. So if you find that thing for yourself, that's step one something you're good at something maybe that people ask you for help with that sort of thing and then figure out who has a problem you can solve using that thing so for instance in my own personal journey after i spent all this time sailing and focused on human happiness i came back i really didn't I've been retired since I was 42. And I'm now in my late 60s. I wasn't looking for a new gig, a new job, I was retired. But during the pandemic, I realized how many people were so unhappy. And I knew I had developed this framework that I had shared, people would ask me to mentor them, and I would do it, or ask me to coach them. And I wasn't looking for a business, but I would do it for free for people that asked. But during the pandemic I realized how many people were so unhappy and I just felt compelled to do what I do now, so I said well i'm going to teach people how to be happier, but then I had to figure out well, who can I solve a problem for by teaching this I could have hung out a shingle and been Tony Robbins light, you know I could have done Mm -hmm. what Tony does not nearly even remotely as good as he does it but I could have held my own seminars and mm-hmm. people that knew they were unhappy would come and but I realized at the same time I was hearing about this great resignation and I immediately put two and two together I saw these people have a, a problem with employees resigning and I and we're hearing why the employees are resigning the, the employees and 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 I, so I realized I had that a solution to that problem and so now I took what I knew I could do well, And I figured out who had that problem that I had the solution for and if you can do that, you can create a career for yourself doing something you love and then you don't need the motivation because you're so driven to want to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's powerful. You know what I
1: realized with the uh, during the pandemic is HR people were in the uh, engagement surveys that HR people do. All of the questions on a typical engagement survey are some version of how can we make you happier at work? And during the pandemic, when I listened to all these people being interviewed on TV that had resigned at the start of it, when we were first hearing the term great resignation, they were all saying, during the pandemic, I had a chance to re examine my life. They weren't saying I had a chance to re examine my work. Mm -hmm. They had a chance to re-examine their life. So HR is focused on work burnout and people were resigning because of life burnout because their life wasn't what they had planned. And now they're, for the first time ever, they're asking themselves these deep existential questions. Am I living the life I want? And of course, the younger the worker, the more they're asking that question. I mean, the the baby boomers are asking it the least. Gen Z is asking it the most. And uh, so that's the... The focus that I bring to what I do is I help people find happiness in their life. And I have this framework that I teach that does that. And and, but HR people need to focus and managers need to focus on what you talked about earlier with that that way of motivating people with specific stuff. And they need to realize, as you said earlier, we work the majority of our day. So this I, I hate the term work life balance. There is no such thing. You can't do something for eight hours a day and put it in a box over here and call it work and have it be separate from your life. So it is just all life balance mm -hmm. and life has to be in balance.
0: I think it's beautiful. I heard, um, there's, there's a, this guy that I listened to his podcast, um, and he does like entrepreneurial training and things like that. Very, very good. Uh, his name is Jason Stapleton, but he, I don't know if he coined it or if he pulled it from somewhere else, but he had talked about a work, not work-life balance, but work-life harmony where you might like, you're never going to have the, the, when people say work-life balance, it's there's an inferred uh, level of the balance, right? That's, that's the inferred part of it is that they need to be equal or at least more equal. And it's just not true. When I was, uh, objectively successful in my military career. Um, I was able to do so because I put an inordinate amount of time and effort into being excellent. And you know what that did is it drew away from my focus at home. I was, I had my, it was my ex-wife now, but we had one, one daughter and then we had a son and then we had another daughter and I was not to say that I wasn't there. I was there and I was doing the thing, but, when it was time to dig down and drill in, like I went to jump master school where you had to memorize verbatim five pages of content. You had to drill on these, uh, this it's called a jump master personnel inspection, where you're actually checking the rig of people who are harnessed up and you have to do like three jumpers and five minutes and you can't miss so many deficiencies. And it, is a lot of work. I'll tell you what. I was. I may have been home, but I was zero percent home. I'm pacing back and forth, like memorizing off note cards, and you know, I'm just. It's there. There was harmony. Like the family was there in the background, harmonizing with the front, and that alignment um, of priorities and making sure that it was clear between the groups was really important. Um, I. So you have, you have created a process to help companies, um, to to expand the capacity for leaders to enable their workforce to become happier and more fulfilled at work. Is that is that fair?
1: Yes, uh, that's a, just a teeny bit inaccurate. I mean, I work with employees and managers. Okay. And my favorite, every company might bring me in a different way, but the best way that I feel uh, is when they're together, and I teach employee happiness. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing that I could do outside of a corporation, and people would be happier. But when it's done in the corporate setting, they are happier at work. They're happier at home, and one of the key things is that their team leaders are invested in their employees' personal happiness. So one little part that, and it's probably the most effective part of what I teach you know the gratitude piece we talked about earlier is something easy to do the Mm -hmm. biggest chunk I do toward the end of the the full of a full day workshop is something I call dream harvesting where people really get in touch with their dreams and their goals and they make this big list of everything they want to do work wise personal wise and you know whether it's I want to have a private jet or I want to take my family to Italy or I want to accomplish this or I want a sales goal or you know i want to have a 20 percent body fat weight whatever it is right. they come up with a really compelling list and then i do some things with also i learned from tony robbins but they're neuro-linguistic programming things that mm-hmm. make the dream very real so you access parts of your brain to help you create the dream in reality and uh and that part of it is and then i is impressive to them and then i have them share this as they draw this uh this as they work on this reality plate piece making it real to all your five senses I have them do that in a share version and now you have your peers and your hopefully your team leader at work engaged in your personal dreams Mm -hmm. and if I if you're willing to share your personal dream with me Matt and I help you and I get invested in seeing that you accomplish that you know that's back to the kind of motivation that really makes a difference in people's lives and clearly having a uh, support network around you is really really critical and so that's the kind of thing that i do and one of the things i talk about is uh and this has a lot to do with resilience as a matter of fact i don't know that i'm sure i haven't mentioned this to you but a number of years ago my wife and i were on a backcountry ski trip to a cabin deep in the colorado rockies and partway there it this snowstorm started it turned into one of the worst storms in modern history in Colorado went on to snow for five days and we couldn't find the cabin we were headed towards and this news was reporting about this massive storm in Colorado the sheriff came on TV and said there were people lost in the storm and on day three he gave us a 10 percent chance of survival and then on day five, he said that they were calling the search off and that they would recover our frozen bodies in the springtime. Oh the my story God. They had really gone viral. The story had gone viral across the country. So millions of people were watching it on TV day by day. And when we got out, the first phone call I got was from the president of the United States congratulating us on our survival. And then in the next days, I was on all the TV shows, Good Morning, America, right. and all those, and the nightly news. And most of them asked us how we had survived, the physical thing we had done. And we didn't have tents because we were headed to a cabin. So it was a pretty serious situation. But on the Today Show, Katie Couric asked me not how we had survived like the others had asked, but she asked me why had we survived. Why had we survived when so many others hadn't? and the answer that I told her and that I firmly believe is two things because we are living in this state of happiness we have two of the byproducts of living in that state are optimism and resilience and it was our resilience that allowed us to you know lay in the snow all night long shivering so hard I thought I would crack a rib and then get up the next morning and get my skis on and put my pack on and break trail All day long through the snow and then do the same thing night after night for for five days and that's that's resilience and the optimism is what allowed us to never consider any other option other than that we were going to get out and you know what i think on the third of the five days the sheriff said our survival chances were less than 10 percent and people say well yeah optimism is that thing where you see the glasses half full but sometimes the glass isn't half full. I mean, for maybe the sheriff was right, maybe the glass was only 10% full. Mm -hmm. But even if it was only 10% full, it was never ever 90% empty. And that's how we looked at that situation. So that's that optimism and the resilience. And we actually had another woman with us, my wife and I and we had this other woman and she was ready to lay down in the snow and die on the second day and she dropped her sleeping bag in her pack because she thought there was no point in it so when we got to sleep again that night she had no sleeping bag my wife gave her sleeping bag to this other woman but after the first night this woman's attitude was well I survived one night I could never survive another one and my wife and I our attitude was we survived one night we can certainly survive two Mm -hmm. and then it was we survived two nights we could certainly survive four And so part of the reason all this stuff is so powerful, this thinking this way, is that the experience of our lives isn't what happens to us, it's how we think about what happens to us. And happy people think differently. So physically, we all three were going through the same physical experience, but my wife and I presented it to our minds in a completely different way. And so We were able to not only get ourselves out alive but we got her out alive and when i share this in the framework of what i teach people then you come to understand if you had a team at work that had your back the way we had our friends back how would that make you feel and if you had people on your team that were so positive that they could get everybody out alive, their optimism brought everybody along and their resilience brought everybody along and sometimes that person is going to be you and sometimes it's going to be me, but as a team, we can do amazing things so that's that's kind of what drives part of what I teach.
0: There's so much, there's so much quality in there. There's so so many questions that I have just about that story alone. But uh, the one thing that I really want to know just, just personally about that is, well, two things. One, what did you eat?
1: <laughs> we had almost no food. Um, we had a, some of the stuff we had was like pasta that we were going to use melt snow. When we got to the cabin, melt snow on the stage stove, turn it into water and make pasta it's not very good out there dry in the in the storm we didn't have a stove with us and and then she had a lot of the food I had the first aid kit and a lot of other stuff and repair gear for the skis and all of that and uh, so we didn't have a lot of food and there were other people that we had all gotten split up in the storm so Mm -hmm. it was a you know there was one night that we split an orange between the three of us that was dinner after burning thousands of calories that all day was long exactly breaking what my trail. process was is that yeah so yeah, there was that and then at the end of it my wife she was fairly healthy but she had really severe frostbite on her hands and her feet and uh the third day that she was in the hospital the doctors pulled me aside and said the next morning they were going to have to amputate both of her feet oh wow and then they would wait a few days and do a second surgery and amputate all of her fingers and when they told me that i you know i was in a state of shock and i somehow managed to drive home but when i walked in the door of our house i looked down and there by the front door i saw a pair of my wife's running shoes that she had taken off after her last run And I just collapsed on the floor, my legs turned to dust and I lay there all night long, just crying uncontrollably, you know, thinking about this fate that was going to happen to my wife the next day, there was nothing I could do about it. And I just cried all night long, holding myself in this fetal position. But I woke up somehow completely transformed and I went from feeling the most powerless I'd ever felt in my life to feeling super powerful and i raced to the hospital and i told my wife she was going to have a complete recovery and from that moment on that's all we focused on was a complete recovery and the key decision we made was that we were going to be happy and have the same kind of incredible life we had always had and that we didn't say we will be happy if she recovers right. or we will be happy when she recovers we just said, we will be happy. And an hour or two later, the doctors came in to prep her for the surgery and we refused to sign the papers authorizing the, the amputation surgery. And uh, that's when later that day is when Tony Robbins called in the, us in the hospital. And he talked with Dee about how to think about and visualize her recovery He shared with her some things that from his mutual friend, uh, Deepak Chopra, Mm -hmm. and uh, he talked to both of us about thinking about having a compelling future for ourselves. And so that's what we focused on. And, uh, you know, it took a year of recovery, but day by day and millimeter by millimeter, her feet that had been frozen solid, they were coal black, they started to turn pink a little bit day by day by day and the whole time for a whole year we had this threat of amputations hanging over us but we never succumbed to that we only thought about optimism and resilience and gratitude and we had had gratitude while we were out skiing every time this five-day storm you know every time the wind dropped from 50 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour we were grateful and every little place that the the trail went downhill a little bit instead of up we were grateful and then later on in the hospital every day we saw another little millimeter of skin turn from black to pink we were grateful and so it was that decision to be happy focusing on our happiness and that optimism and resilience that come from living with happiness and gratitude in your life that you know cha- made it possible for us And so, a year after that ski day, we were on the beach uh, in Cancun, Mexico, at a Tony Robbins event. He had invited us to be his guests, and Dee was dancing in the sand on the beach in Cancun with two feet and ten fingers and nine and a half toes.
0: That's incredible. That is so. That is so powerful. That is. Oh my gosh. There are no words. There are no words. That is amazing. And then.
1: Another year after that day on the beach, we put into place that compelling future that we had talked about from the very first day in the hospital. And that's when we sold our home and bought a sailboat and set off to sail around the world. So the sailing
0: happened after that event. Oh my gosh, that's... So that was actually the next thing that I wanted to ask you about um, was what your... So obviously you were embodying a lifestyle that embraced happiness, that understood resilience and how to leverage it going into this 17 year you know,
1: trip. That, that was a bit of an evolution because um, we had, I grew up in Colorado and we lived in Colorado, miles from the ocean, but I had, I had gotten interested in sailing and I loved the idea of it. And we were able to pivot our film production company to making a lot of sailing movies and we became very involved with the america's cup and the really big uh high-end yacht races and the people that do that are all multimillionaires and billionaires because it's so expensive Mm -hmm. and so we were filming working with espn for instance filming the america's cup and these billionaires would have their crews deliver the yacht to wherever the regatta was going to be they would sail the yacht there and then they'd fly in in the private jet and then we would get to go out sailing with them And so I was spending time with all this, you know, these rarefied uh, wealthy people and I noticed some of them were happy and some weren't. And then a few years later, we were off sailing around the world and going to these third world countries and, you know, meeting barefoot villagers who lived in grass shacks and some of them were happy and some weren't and the percentage wasn't radically different but we were also a part of a third group. And that was this sort of group of itinerant sailors like ourselves, people who had made a decision to get on a sailboat with no other reason than to do what would make them happy. This was way before the era of the digital nomad, So nobody was out there, you know, earning a living, getting likes and follows and, Mm and YouTube videos and all that. We were just out there to literally make ourselves happy. And almost all of that group was extremely happy. And so, I had, that's really what stirred my interest. I knew I had always been very happy and there's a science behind it. Part of it is in our DNA. And I knew I was one of the lucky DNA people, but I still observed what we were seeing in all of our friends, where this group of sailors, almost everybody had these super high levels of happiness almost all the time. And then I noticed things like what we talked about earlier with the gratitude, Because of the lifestyle we were all living, seeing these people who had so much less than us, we were all spending a lot of time in gratitude and I made the connection. Oh, gratitude is part of what's leading to this happiness that we feel. And then one of the things about sailing is um, you always really need to be present and mindful because you're always just a few little bad luck breaks away from disaster you know if i bring my car home and i put it in the garage and put it in park it's probably okay and i'm a pilot if i land my airplane and get it into the hangar probably nothing's going to happen but your sailboat the wind can always change at a moment's notice and you have to do something get out of the anchorage escape out to sea and then you just always not on edge I would say but you always need to be present and mindful about what's going on and so I learned oh there's a connection here between being present and mindful and happiness because happiness is an experience is an emotion you can only experience in the moment I can't store up extra happiness today and have it with me tomorrow
0: I and love I love that you said that because I I, I didn't want to push back on the pursuit of happiness, but I'd wanted to engage in a dialogue about, about the fleeting nature of being happy. Uh, I've spent, I probably did a podcast episode a while ago, over a year ago that was about um, like kind of like the contradiction of happiness or the, the discussing like the elusive nature of it and how it's that Choosing that for your goal is not, is oftentimes a letdown because if you're expecting to do this thing to make you happy, then you're gonna do the thing, you're gonna be happy, and then then it's gonna be over. Yeah, I I had the experience. I was in Hawaii. I had climbed up uh, Cocoa Head, which for people that aren't familiar, it's uh, old World. I don't know. It probably had to be World War II uh, railroad track. It was a supply track that. Literally, would just go straight up this mountain. There's no twists or turns or anything. It just goes straight up. They would drop supplies off and then it would come back down and then it would go back up. And so there were a bunch of bunkers up there. It's a very challenging hike, but it's, uh, and people, there are so many people doing it. It is always full, but I had that exact experience. It was actually a, a revelatory part of, of my story when it came to discussing how to plan for the future and how to plan for fulfillment instead of happiness in the sense that, you can't do it based off a mountaintop. You can't do it based off a goal, right? I, I got to the top and the whole process on the way up was amazing. It was so hard. It was such a struggle, but they like, the people I interacted with was incredible. And I got to the top. But when I, I was also under very time-constrained circumstances, I was there on business and I was given six hours to do Hawaii. So... <laughs> so i took i went out and that was one of the things i did three things and that was one of them i did diamond head which is a much smaller hike up to the bunkers i did cocoa head and i did uh a hanama hanoma bay uh where i was able to do my first ever um snorkeling was very good compacted six hours but but needless to say when i got to the top of the mountain it was it literally it went something very much like this i got to the top Pulled up my phone, selfie, selfie, video, little uh, you know, talk into the camera, video, and all right, I gotta go back down. And I, it, that really summarized for me. It brought into focus the the or perspective what we do with goals and goal setting is that we say I'm gonna do this thing when I do it, I'm happy. But you don't realize that you have to come back down off of that mountain, and you're not up there for very long. <laughs>
1: Well, very great point, because as I started studying happiness and making the connections that I was seeing, I also started reading what the scientists, the PhDs that were in this field of positive psychology had to say, and I learned exactly what you just brought up, that the scientists have actually defined it as they they do. They came up with a really good distinction, that there's two kinds of happiness. And one of them is called hedonic happiness, Mm -hmm. and the other is called eudaimonic happiness. And so hedonic happiness, the the root word is hedonism. Mm -hmm. And it's just what you said. It's the things that make us happy in the moment. And, you know, it could be having a good meal, meeting a new friend, having the right person, having sex, getting a glass of wine, eating a piece of chocolate, whatever it is, it's happiness of the moment. And even, you know, you buy a new car or a new house and it makes you really happy. But a year from now, it's just your car. It's, you know, so we need both kinds of happiness. But if we only have that hedonic happiness, we're always chasing that next thing. The other kind of happiness is called eunomonic happiness. And it has to do with things that create purpose and meaning in our lives. And so that's a big part of what I teach is how do we find this purpose and meaning in our lives. And that is the happiness that is not of the moment. It keeps on giving and giving and giving. And so if you ask people what will make them happy, and especially in a work situation, if you work for a very forward thinking company and they have a great HR department and and the HR person says, you know, tell us what you want to make you happy. Most of the things you list are the hedonic happiness, (laughs) more pay, you know more paid time off yeah we love the idea of taco tuesdays and the massage chair and kombucha on tap and in fact if you're an hr person listening to me your employees are lying to you
0: they're not doing it on purpose
1: they're they're lying to themselves they're telling themselves and you the things that they think will make them happy but in fact it's when you get to their eudaimonic happiness things that it then you don't have to have the new benefit package every six months every year, because you're developing the things that really make them happy. And so the things that have to do with eudaimonic happiness are the gratitude practice we've talked about. The biggest one is contribution and being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And it's all the things that give purpose and meaning in your life. And so when we sailed around the world for 17 years, and we had no constraints on us, we visited all these wonderful places, 100 countries, lots of time in beautiful palm lined lagoons i could jump over the side and swim down and grab a lobster for dinner or lunch every day that i wanted to do that and in the end here's what worked to make us really happy we went uh you, you know we were always grateful but it was still that kind of hedonic of the moment happiness that we were grateful for. And we got to a uh, um, our first port of call, we left Australia. And our first port of call in Indonesia was this medium sized city uh, named Kupang. And a young woman approached us on the beach and offered to be our guide so she could practice her English. And we spent a couple days with her and she was just so brilliant and fun and wonderful. And so smart. You know, if she'd been in the US, she'd have been on a full ride scholarship to Harvard. And her parents made two hundred dollars a month. They bought vegetables at the big market. The father peddled on his bicycle as many vegetables as he could carry to the small market. And they sold the vegetables for a couple pennies more at the small market to save other, you know, people having to do the bicycle trip. But luckily, and so she wanted to go to school and hadn't been able to. And then just the year we met her, she had finally gotten a scholarship to go to school. And she was in school to become an English teacher. And we knew there must be so many other young women just like her, that we were sort of compelled to want to do something. And I thought, well, let's just raise some money for her to you know, continue her education. And so the other sailors that we were with this kind of itinerant group of sailors just passing through like ourselves. That everybody, you know, always wanted to do more for the people we met. And so everybody felt the same way. And we were able to raise a little money. But then I decided, well, let's just see if we can do more than this. And we ended up, we were only in this city for one week. And we met with the president of the university where she was going to the university. And he agreed to waive the entrance requirements and all the government requirements to get into the school for anybody that we would want to sponsor. And then we went to the, couple of the high schools and we worked with the headmasters to come up with a scholarship criteria uh, based on both academic ability and financial need. And then we worked with all the other sailors raising money. And we knew the sailors in future years would want to do the same thing. And we're really, we're just like people driving down the highway. We're just itinerant sailors visiting this town this week and next month we will be somewhere else. But we put in place a scholarship program in a matter of one week, And that was 13 years ago. And we've now sent 29 kids through five years of college. Oh my gosh. And by far of the 17 years we were out sailing, this is the best thing we did. And it's still going. It's still our way of of contributing to something bigger than ourselves. And because it's a teaching college, the 29 kids we've put through college, A lot of them have gone back to their home villages, and now they're teachers there, and they're, you know, dropping the stone in the water, and the ripples are are spreading out. And so, for us, this this uh, ability to find this eudaimonic happiness has been so rewarding, and it comes from the things that provide purpose and meaning in your life. And for a lot of people, our jobs are what provide the meet part of the meaning in our life especially if you find the right job where you're doing something meaningful and you have found that that best in you to help others if you can put that piece of the puzzle together then you have that eudaimonic happiness in your life and then the great resignation and quiet quitting and disengagement are things that don't exist for you because you are engaged in the thing that is giving your life meaning and that's that's my goal that's what I try and bring to the world and bring to the, my clients now.
0: That's beautiful. I think one of the, one of the very powerful strategies that you were discussing that you do is the integration of the workers and the leadership or the management. While you're, you're allowing people when, when you're allowing people, when you're facilitating the opportunity for leaders to one, become aware the first step is awareness uh, of what these, people what who they are from a 365 degree perspective versus uh or 360 365 days a year (laughs) but you got it (laughs) um from this perspective you know you're getting a feel for who who they really are and where their priorities are including outside of the work um and then you can really leverage your own experience or you know choose to go there's so many activities that you could do that benefit both the person and the organization at the same time as a leader that you wouldn't know about until you had this event. Um, I think that one of the other things that is really important that that does is when the when that management when the leadership decides to take action on this says, "Hey, you know what? Even if it's just, I read a book that you know speaks on on some of the stuff that you're really interested in. And I think it would be great for you." even those little actions where they're not doing like coaching and counseling and mentoring, when they're just, they're participating in that person's story. And and that's, I think that's an important perspective for people to have is everyone that you have in your life, they're all participating in your story, right? Because you're like the center of your own universe. And that's just the way that we're built. But you have to becoming aware of that and being able to flip that on its head to see, oh, I'm a part of their story. You know, what, how do I want, like, what role do I want to have? What what character do I want to play in the movie that is their life? Because I can, I can kind of choose that to the extent that they, they allow me in. But I think what that does, especially within, within the workplace, you know, where the work that we do is, is that it, it fosters trust, you know, it builds this like genuine trust because you're not helping. It's one thing to be helped to do something that enables enhanced performance within the workplace. It's another thing to be facilitated to increase your performance or increase your happiness and fulfillment outside of the workplace by the people that you work with in the workplace, because then it's, there's, there's no question that it's genuine. It's like, they're, this, this has nothing to do with the organization and they're invested in me participating in this and doing that. And I think that that's powerful. What, what have you seen as far as the impact of trust and have you dealt with any organizations that I obviously don't have to go by name that have had sort of trust issues that you've had to work with, or how does that play a role in what you do?
1: Well, you know, it's so much an individual thing. I mean, as all the HR people know, people don't quit companies, they quit bad managers. And so, you know, you can have X, Y, Z company and You know, team A does great because they have a great manager and team B just fails. And, you know, management training is such a huge part of what's necessary. I have two other speaker friends that one of them speaks on corporate culture and one of them is an HR specialist and her whole buzzword or her whole, uh, you know, branding and picture is bringing the human back to human resources. And, you know, she wants people to get out of their performance reviews with their dignity intact. And so often, when I talk to a company, the company needs all three pieces of the puzzle, you know, and I think the biggest thing is certainly things are changing. And you know, as human human beings in general are resistant to change. And human beings that run corporations are no different. And the C suite is just starting to feel the pain of the great resignation uh you know before it was an hr problem and hr is a sunk cost you know if you're the ceo all of your love goes to the marketing department and the advertising department and the sales department and the hr people are somebody that we have to have but we you know if we didn't have to have them we wouldn't and now they're realizing gee We don't have enough you know pipes in the pipeline because we're short of people on the production line because our HR department can't keep the jobs filled and. I can't remember oh I guess fortune magazine did a survey of I think the their top 200 fortune 200 CEOs and a huge majority 70 or 75% of them said that they felt their sales were going to be down in the next year because of lack of talent. So finally, the C-suite is paying attention to this stuff. And, you know, they're smart people. They're gonna, they get on, the smart ones are getting on the bandwagon sooner rather than later saying just what I talked about earlier, because during that that pandemic, if you look at the Gallup Q12, uh, which is a a traditional engagement survey, as I said, every question is how can we make you happier at work? Mm -hmm. And in quote after quote from people who resign, they said I looked at my life so hr can't just focus on the 9 to 5 they have to look at that whole person as you said the 365 degree de- or 360 degree person they have to look at the whole person and we should all know this nobody has a bad day at home and comes to work and delivers 100% and nobody has a bad day at work and comes home and gives their family 100% mm-hmm. so we are integrated human beings and we have to start looking at people, having them a bit, whole life better. So uh, John Clifton, the the president of Gallup recently just came out with a new book about a month ago. It's already on bestseller list called mm-hmm. Blind Spot, the global rise in unhappiness and how leaders have missed it. And it's a lot focused on political world leaders, but it still trickles down to business leaders mm-hmm. and business leaders are finally starting to realize They need to make their people happy, not just at work, not just nine to five, but you need to have happy, healthy people that are working for you that are happy at home, life too. And so that's why what I do is starting to resonate more and more with with the C-suite, because when people are happy, then engagement goes up and profits go up. I mean, there's so many studies to show how profitable it is, and this is what I encourage. What I spoke like at uh, Sherm is the Society yes. for Human Resources Management the glo- the global organization I spoke at the Phoenix, at the Arizona conference recently in Phoenix so you know a thousand or 1200 size convention and every state has one and I spoke on what I speak on happiness but I spoke to the HR department and I provide them the data of how one one survey just one one sur- study showed happy employees sales employees closed 37% more sales. The same survey found companies that had happy employees were 20% more, uh, grew 20% faster than their competitors. So there's just this ample data, resignations drop, your employees become your best source of recruitment for new employees, they become, you know, so the the statistics are so overwhelming, but you still have to get the C-suite to look at the numbers Before you can have that conversation and that's what I I try to urge HR people to have those numbers and show them to the C suite. And the other thing is, I think HR has a once in a generation chance for people that are in the HR field, because they have a chance to sit at the table that they've never had before. As I said, in the past, the C suite only gave all their love to advertising and marketing and sales. And now They're realizing they need to, you know, the HR needs to be part of the strategic vision of the company.
0: Yeah. Especially when you consider that one of the core tenants under HR, a lot of people think about HR and they think about um, like the legal issues with people and, and having to do that. there's a, there's a real negative kind of connotation. If HR is brought in, there's a problem. Right. Um, But one of the core and, or they might think that, okay, they're responsible for hiring and, and firing. Also 50% not happy, you know? <laughs> so, um, but one of the things that I think gets lost is that they can be integrally involved with uh, with performance management and performance reviews. And that's, so one of the things that, that I don't like about conversations like this is, and this is not happening here, but conversations that I hear like this where people to bring up a problem that's fundamental and they talk about, you know, there needs to be, we need to bring awareness. People need to become aware. And I'm like, that's cool. I am an action guy. You know, like, what are the steps? We are okay. Say everyone's aware. What do they do now? And so what I'm thinking about here is CEOs and C-suites are starting to become aware. That is, you can't you can't have action before awareness. So you have to become aware that there's a problem and that there is there are ways to solve it. And you have to figure out what those ways are the one of the biggest questions i have is is how do we take something like what you're doing where we endorse and and heavily invest in a 360 degree happiness of a person that uh that oh my gosh i just forgot it you said the non hedonic happiness the uh what was it
1: uh, eudaimonic happiness eudaimonic
0: yeah the eudaimonic happiness I, invest in that How do organizations, how do corporations, how do nonprofits, how do government agencies, how do they create structure that promotes that type of happiness?
1: Great question. So think about anything that you are good at in your life. You're a master skydiver. The way you got there, whether it's skydiving or learning to play the guitar or... A, a sport you're good at or your job itself you got some instruction you took some lessons you read a book you listened to other people and then you practice and practice until you got good at it we all think when i get the new car happiness will strike me like a lightning bolt out of the sky or the term you used earlier which comes from our uh Constitution, uh, excuse me, our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, happiness is not something you pursue, and it's not something that happens to you like a lightning bolt out of the sky because you met the right person. Happiness needs to be taught just like you taught skydiving, or like you taught somebody how to play the, a musical instrument, or how you taught somebody to ski. So, happiness needs to be taught, and it can be taught so harvard university started a happiness studies course a little while ago it immediately became the most popular course in the history of harvard university yale university said we need to be focused on this too they started a happiness studies course it immediately became the most popular course in the history of yale university so we need to realize happiness does need to be taught like every other skill and it can be taught and then there's a framework for Happiness, and I actually developed my own framework from what I was seeing out sailing and making these connections in my own mind. But then, of course, I got interested in what are the the scientists that study it learning. I would learned some new things for sure. But mostly, what I saw is what I had observed fit exactly with what they were doing in their experiments or. To my mind quite weird I mean they're bringing undergraduates in and they're telling them we're studying you for this, but in reality they're watching them for that, or then they have them rate their own happiness and six months later rate it again so you know that's. It's not the same as a science test where you add this chemical to that chemical and you get a resort a, a result, but anyway it's what the psychologists do, but their findings over years matched exactly what I was learning. Uh, so I have a framework that I teach. There's a framework that Harvard teaches and Yale teaches, and they're 90% the same, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so anyway, that's how it is. And it's really based on the, the science of positive psychology is what it's called. The The field goes back about 40 years, but a lot of the stuff is much, much newer than that. Because uh, one of the things I, I get tapped for as a thought leader in this area sometimes and Authority magazine did an interview with me about mental wellness because so many companies say oh yeah we're doing that we have mental wellness in our corporation but they're not doing what we're talking about because if you think of happiness on a scale of one to ten the mental wellness efforts focus on people that are one and two they're already depressed and burned out and they're maybe in clinical depression even, and their mental wellness efforts come in and they get them up to a three or a four so they can be productive again. But happiness training is to get somebody to be a nine or a 10. So they're having a peak work experience and a peak life experience, and the company is more profitable because engagement is so much higher. So that's what I work on. And, you know, if you think about, if you wanna become a, uh, Uh, a ultra marathoner or a Ironman competitor you don't go to your doctor you go to a trainer who gets you to that nine or ten level it's the same thing if you're sick you go to a doctor or whether it's sick mentally or sick physically you go to a doctor who brings you up from being sick to bring to being okay But if you want to be at that peak level of happiness, or that peak level of physical fitness, you need somebody who specializes in doing that. So that's why mental wellness is not the same thing as happiness training.
0: That's so powerful. I actually was just, uh, I recently got I'm going on this, you know, psychological training journey. And part of it was understanding the history of psychology. And there was a There was a shift, it was actually, we had talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow actually uh, brought in the, I think it was called third force psychology. Um, And it was the first time in history that a wing thought leader in psychology shifted away exactly from what you said, from mental wellness, from getting people who are um, mentally disturbed to To being able to you know to bring them up to a place where you know they're able to live a more fulfilling life uh, and just on a base level getting them almost from negatives, if you will, um, to even a zero, one, two, or three. But Maslow's whole focus and the positive psychology movement and third third force psychology was all about exactly what you're talking about, and it's it's huge, and that's why it's still that's why we can still say Maslow's hierarchy of needs today. And it still resonates because it is that powerful and it has withstood the test of time. Absolutely. I so I, I've come up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you my um my four tenets of a of a fulfilled life. And I wanna want to discuss one in particular with you and how it, it plays in with what you're doing. So I think that in order to lead a fulfilled life each day, we have to kind of check these box in one way or another. And I go into depth about, there are different ways and categories to do this. And so it's loving, learning, struggling, and achieving. These are these, I think if you're not doing these in some way, shape, or form, then you're going to be left feeling uh, less than you could be otherwise. The one that I wanted to focus on, because I think that this gets lost in the fray when people hear happiness and discussions of happiness is the struggle portion and is when we're thinking about, and we've discussed, we've discussed gratitude, which is focusing on, on the good things and and the, the positive uh, effects of this, that, and the other um, of people, of things, of experiences. And when we think about uh, setting goals or, or, you know, shooting for these, these targets and, and accomplishing great things in our lives, these are all very positive, happy things. But how does struggle, um, how does pain play with, our say, as, as we are a, a species in permanent struggle, right? And so, um, what, what, how does that play in with the, per, not the pursuit, but the, the idea of living a fulfilled and, and more happy life?
1: A uh, great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for you, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Um, I don't know, I, I guess struggling is an okay word. I often use the word challenge um, because challenge, at least for me, a challenge excites me. So mm-hmm. I'm a mountain climber, uh, I'm a pilot, I'm a skier. So any challenge you put in front of me, I gravitate towards. So maybe that's my my word for it. Um, I don't know that we have to go through pain a lot of people do go through pain and they use their pain to catapult them to a better place and I think that's great I, I you know so do we have to go through pain in my mind no do we have to struggle I would again I would use the word challenge but I agree with you we need to overcome something to grow yes so I think we need to constantly do that and my first response when you said those four things is like loving is part of that eudaimonic happiness for sure and that has to do with the relationships in our life and we all crave that and learning growth you know this human species we have to grow and so do you have to grow through struggle all the time i don't know you have to grow through challenge if you if you're not challenged you're not going to grow i mean if you do i think
0: that I, i think that's a great point there can be um it's called semantic noise when uh, terms between so it, it's a it's a barrier to communication and so like you have external noise like music playing in the back I have construction happening outside the house so if anyone's hearing that that's external noise internal noise right the the kind of stuff that we're dealing with inside of our head our psychology our, our mental state and then there's semantic noise where. Um, our definitions of words may differ from one another. And I think that you did a really good job of of kind of sewing those two together because that's essentially what I mean. I, I, I don't know how much... Uh, let's see how to word this correctly. I think the nutrient density of a challenge or a uh, an event that pushes you beyond your comfort zone i think the 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 if we're thinking about the nutrients for your soul and for your mental state i think it's so much more densely packed than purely positive experiences and that's why i put struggle in there but i think we're on the same
1: page we're definitely on the same page especially as you just explained it because i believe all the magic lies outside our comfort zone and you know I told you about how I was on all those television shows the day after uh, this ski incident and all that and we had multiple press conferences with 40 and 50 you know New York Times and Washington post all in the room and I believe it was a reporter from people magazine asked me two questions he said what did you learn from your experience and I answered that and the second question he said is are you going to do trips like this again and when i went to answer that time literally stopped because i realized how i answered that question was going to determine the entire rest of my life how i answered that question and we all get that question asked of us every day every day we get that question asked are you going to go big or are you going to stay home Mm -hmm. are you going to stay inside your zone of comfort or are you going to be willing to step out of it and challenge struggle whatever the term is are you willing to step into the next thing because you can't achieve unless you unless you take on the challenge and so i looked at the guy and i said Do you play golf and i I don't know why i knew he was a golfer but i I somehow i did and he said yes and i said did you ever have a bad round of golf and are you going to still play golf and you know that's what it was it was i knew but i knew that how i answered that question and you know this was in that same period where we're worried about my wife's feet and and is she going to recover or spend the rest of her life with no feet and no fingers And I still answered the question, yes, I'm definitely, I said, I have a trip planned in six weeks, another hut trip to a cabin in the mountains, and I'm going on that trip. And so that's the, the, you know, do we step up to the plate every time the pitch is coming or not? And that's the question every one of us have to answer. But the way I see it is once you answer no, your world shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Until the at the end of your life, you know, you're sitting on the couch and everything outside of the, your house is dangerous. And if you decide differently, you have a dream as big as the world, and we had a dream as big as the world, and we went out and sailed around the world.
0: I literally couldn't I couldn't end this podcast in a better way. Like that was that was the epitome of what a perfect ending to a podcast This that is your story is incredible. You are an amazing, amazing man, uh, a light, a light to the world and a light to organizations and to leaders and to just people, you know, and I, I can't tell you how much I'm grateful for this experience and I'm grateful for our time together and that you're willing to spend this time with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's, it's what drives me and gets me out of bed and every morning is it, I know I have something that I need to share with people.
0: I love it. I love it. If, so, if people want to follow you, if they want to figure out where you might be speaking next or how to get in touch with you for, um, you know, working with their businesses, perhaps like, how is, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn at Rob Dubin, or they can go to my website, uh, robdubin.com and uh, on the resources page there, there's some downloadable files, uh, a lot of the things we've talked about today, there are files that they can download about that, that stuff. a uh, framework for happiness that I teach some things on relationships and and other things so yeah it's all there on my website at robdubin.com and I'd love to work with any organizations that are interested in increasing engagement or reducing resignations
0: that's beautiful and I I'm I'm on the website right now it's a it's a beautiful beautiful really well put together site I just what well, the one last question I have is so superficial where where is this picture where are you in this picture that you have for the like the first oh, the, open,
1: the opening picture I believe that's on the Amalfi Coast of Italy uh near Cinque Terre, if people have heard of that or the Amalfi Coast uh I believe something
0: that. about italy called to me in this picture we were we went there about a year or two ago and it's just oh, absolutely gorgeous so i, I, I did a
1: uh, i did a program a couple months just two months ago i think it was the end of july and uh, a couple in there in the dream harvesting portion of the workshop they wrote that they wanted to go to italy and this was it tw- i think july 20th was when i was doing this seminar and three weeks ago they sent me pictures of themselves in italy so they'd already made their dream happen within a few wow. months. Oh
0: my gosh. That's so incredible. But so powerful. It's so powerful what you can do when you, it's so cliche when you put your mind to it, but like really when you when you shift the way that you're thinking and you realize that these things are possible and it's just, it's just a matter of readjusting your focus. Beautiful, beautiful stuff, Rob. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much. I well, sure thank you for good. having me and I love the difference you're making in the world.
0: Same major dinners.